Amen, Lord Jesus. We welcome you here among us. Holy Spirit, we long, I would say, for your presence here. We thank you that you will never leave us nor forsake us. You're always here with us. We just ask that you would move this morning in our hearts and our minds, preparing us to receive what it is that you have spoken to us through your, your word. Lord, speak through me to bring glory to you. It's not about me, it's about you. So encourage your church this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Get your Bibles out. Or you can be like Chase Cook, just get up and walk out when I preach. So, <laughs> There you go, I know you are tired of listening to me. Good boy. Amen. That's my boy. All right. Our new sermon series, uh, last week we introduced it, What the Bible Says About, we talked about family. Uh, this morning will be What the Bible Says About Marriage. Okay, kind of connected to the family. So we're going to talk about marriage redefined. Last week it was family redefined, and now it's marriage redefined. So on Genesis, on Genesis, <laughs> On June 26th, 2015, a day which will live in infamy, by the way, what happened? In the landmark case, Obergefell versus Hodges, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down all state bans on same-sex marriage and legalized it in all 50 states. Now, how did our country arrive at such a decision? Well, you have to go back to 1972, and here's a brief history lesson. This, I got this from the Cornell Law School website. I'm gonna put all of these up here. The point is you'll see a trend happening. These are the dates, and I'll go into each of these in more depth. In 1972, in the decision Baker versus Nelson, the Supreme Court of the United States declined to hear the case about the denial of marriage license applications to, for same-sex couples for want of a substantial federal question. Uh, this ruling blocked federal courts from reviewing same-sex marriage cases for decades, leaving the decision solely in the hands of states. In 1973, Maryland, this is funny, Maryland became the first state to create a law that explicitly defines marriage as a union between a man and a woman, and other states were eager to adopt Maryland's course. This is where it gets funny. Virginia did it in 1975. And in 1977, Wyoming, Florida, and California adopted that. The land of fruits and nuts. That was what Roger Eggert, or, uh, Ryan Eggerdahl told me about Florida, or California, when I was being interviewed for the job here, so... In the late 1980s and early 90s, same-sex couples were able to see some signs of hope on the marriage front. In 1993, the highest court in Hawaii ruled that a ban on same-sex marriage may <coughs> excuse me, violate the state constitution equal protection clause. This is the first time a state court has ever inched towards making same-sex marriage legal. In 1996, U.S. Congress added another blow by passing the what? The Defense of Marriage Act. Even though the Defense of Marriage Act did not ban same-sex marriage, it provided that only heterosexual couples could be granted federal marriage death. Of course, who was the, in the White House in 1996? 
You remember? Democrat Bill Clinton was president of the United States at the time. In 2000, Vermont became the first state to legalize civil unions. In 2003, Massachusetts Supreme Court ruled that same-sex couples had the right to marry and began issuing marriage licenses on May 17, 2004. In 2010, Massachusetts became the first state to legalize gay marriage by saying that Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act that defined marriage as a union between one man and one woman to be unconstitutional. 2013, the Supreme Court of the United States struck down Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act, and by 2015, the year Obergefell was decided, 36 states already issued marriage licenses to same-sex couples in more than 20 countries around the world had already legalized gay marriage, starting with the Netherlands in 2000. Now, by a 5-4 liberal majority of the Supreme Court, this new definition of marriage passed. And here is one of the reasons the majority justices gave for their decision. Marriage, and this is a quote, marriage is a keystone of our social order, and there is no difference between same and opposite sex couples with respect to this principle. Additionally, the court rejected the argument that allowing same-sex couples to marry harms the institution of marriage, leading to fewer opposite-sex marriages. Instead, the court stated that married same-sex couples, and I quote, would pose no risk of harm to themselves or third parties. Okay? Now, what I find interesting is what the four dissenting or conservative justices wrote back in 2015. And in a prophetic vein, mind you, they said that, number one, some religious institutions may be in danger of losing their tax-exempt status if they discriminate against married same-sex couples. Is that happening today? They're being threatened for sure. Another quote, the decision would have unavoidable and wide-ranging implications for religious liberty. It is all but inevitable that churches will be confronted with demands to participate in and endorse civil marriages between same-sex couples. Is that happening? Yes, it is. And finally, I quote, they expressed fear that while individuals opposed to same-sex marriage may be able to whisper their thoughts in the recesses of their homes, such individuals would be labeled as bigots and treated as such by governments, employers, and schools. Has that happened? Yes, it has. The concern of redefining marriage has been voiced by a variety of religious leaders, obviously. Um, here's what evangelical pastor and founder of the Boone-based, Boone, North Carolina-based Samaritan's Purse, Franklin Graham, said at the time. The Supreme Court of the United States, this is very important to understand, the Supreme Court of the United States has ruled today that same-sex marriage is legal in all 50 states. With all due respect to the court, it did not define marriage, and therefore it is not entitled to redefine it. Long before government came into existence, marriage was created by the one who created man and woman, Almighty God, and his decisions are not subject to review or revision by any man-made court. God is clear about the definition of marriage in his holy word, 
Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24. I pray God will spare America from his judgment, though by our actions as a nation we give him less and less reason to do so. Now, what is interesting to note is this. A Pew Research Center poll in 2001 found that 57% of the Americans opposed same-sex marriage, and only 35% supported it. That was in 2001. 15 years later, in 2016, the same poll found almost the complete opposite. 55% of the Americans supported same-sex marriage, and 37% opposed. Now, the question I have is, well, what happened to American culture? Well, first, uh, America turned away from God. The best example of this is, I think, from 1962. So I want you to turn here to Romans 1 in your Bibles. And I will wait till everybody gets there because you won't be able to follow this next section until we get there. Get out your Bibles, get out your phones or tablets. Romans chapter 1. First, how do we get here? Well, first point is America turned away from God. I think the best example of this that we all would be, well, not all of us now, but it's historical fact, is from 1962. That's when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that prayer in public schools was a violation of the Establishment Clause and effectively removed sponsored prayer from public schools. That was in 1962. Okay, so we're pushing God out of our American society. Now Paul describes it this way in Romans one twenty one. For even though they knew God, and obviously America knows God, it's founded on you know, our, God is our creator, it says in our constitution. They did not honor him as God. Does everyone see that? Romans one twenty one, Or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So you stop honoring God, well, what happens next in our society? And this is historically true of every nation. A rejection of God is always followed by a sexual revolution. What happened in the 60s? The sexual revolution. The 19, you look it up. The 1960s sexual revolution was a social movement that challenged traditional norms of behavior related to sexuality. What it did is it led to the normalization of pornography and premarital sex that just became normal. Everybody was doing it. I grew up in the 80s, everyone was having sex. Pornography wasn't as accessible as it is now, but it was the Playboys were there and the Hustler magazines, it was all there. There were the triple X rated movie theaters still, okay? Now, Paul describes it this way in Romans 1.24. Therefore, now the word therefore obviously is referring to what was before. They rejected God, okay? Therefore, 
God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. That's the sexual revolution. Now, well, what happens after a sexual revolution? Well, if you look at our timeline, the, the, this right here, what's happening? Look at the dates there. So we've had the, God's kicked out in 62, we have a sexual revolution, now we're in the 70s, and what's happening? What's called a homosexual revolution. You see that? Paul describes it this way in Romans 1, 26 to 27. Let's look at that up. For this reason, God gave them over to a degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. So we have lesbianism, women with women. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the, of the woman, obviously heterosexuality, and burned in desire toward one another. That's homosexuality. With men, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So we have a rejection, rejecting God, rejection of God followed by a sexual revolution followed by a homosexual revolution. Well, now, the question I have is, well, how has the homosexual revolution turned out? Well, is it true what the five liberal justices stated that married same-sex couples, I quote, would pose no risk of harm to themselves or third parties. Well, obviously, what happened in 1991 as a result of this homosexual activity. Think of Magic Johnson and AIDS and HIV and all of that. But go beyond that. By redefining the family and marriage, the government has ushered in unprecedented confusion about human sexuality, and we see it every day. If the homosexual movement would be content with society affirming their rights, that would be one thing. But they don't stop there. They want everybody to be an ally and activist that promotes their lifestyle. This is exactly what the radical LGBTQIA plus movement is doing. Now, apparently there are 50, Carol told me there are 52 genders now. So, I, you know, there are only 26 letters in the alphabet. But I don't know how they get that. But anyways, out of this gender confusion, they have targeted third parties. The victims, the third parties, are children. So remember, those liberal justices said that same-sex marriage poses no threat to themselves and to third parties. So I'm asking you, is that true? We are living in a time of gender dysphoria. What is gender dysphoria? By definition, it's a psychological distress that results from an incongruence between one's sex assigned at birth and one's gender identity that's brought on by a radical gender ideology that aggressively pushes not only a homosexual agenda on children, but also transgenderism. And you've, if you've watched any news the last few years, this is, it's almost daily, this issue. Now keep in mind again that those five wise liberal justices said that there would be no threat to third parties. But where is this happening? What am I talking about, this 
homosexual gender or gay agenda and this transgenderism in children? Well, first of all, it's happening across the countries in libraries. Did you know that? Libraries are hosting children's story time with drag queens. According to Dylan Pontiff, one such drag queen openly admitted what he is doing. This is going to be the grooming of the next generation. We are trying to groom the next generation. The key word there is grooming. Now what is grooming? I think of grooming as you will groom your hair, right? Well, by definition, this is what grooming is. It is the deliberate act of bringing a child into a sexual, political, or racial ideology, practice, cult, or lifestyle without the knowledge or consent of parents for the aim of isolating them so that the external party can abuse or manipulate them. Okay? It's happening in our schools. David, you're up with this first video taken off of Twitter. You make records this from the adult Sunday school class. So if you can make it a little bit bigger, that screen there. This is from the... Um, this is a uh, uh, middle school, elementary school. What are they celebrating here? Pride. Uh huh. Now that's, you know, that's probably enough of that video for now. Take it down. Okay. I want you to, um, these videos, by the way, um, this is the beginning of conservatives fighting back against this. Whistleblowers are coming out and are pushing this agenda, or uh, are exposing what's going on in the schools. That has been going on for some time, actually, to be honest with you. But what I want you to notice is what I, I put up here. Uh, look at what the whistleblower uh, highlighted here. This was the same school. It's in Austin, Texas. I think it was like Doss Elementary, I think it was. Um, look at what they say right here. Respect privacy. What we say in this room stays in this room. Okay? Here we go over here, same thing. Please remember that we agreed to keep what happened in this circle confidential. So that, what they're teaching that week and that, that, that prayed and all of this is being hidden from who? Parents. parents. Exactly. Don't tell your parents that we are grooming you what we're grooming you to be. In this case, they're grooming them to be either, it's normal to be gay, it's normal to be transgender, you know, and it's normal especially to be an ally or activist for this movement. Okay? That was Doss Elementary in Austin, Texas School District. And there are more of this and Twitter and stuff like that, you can find this stuff everywhere. Okay? That's grooming. So it's happening across the country in libraries, it's in our schools, and it's at the places we vacation for family entertainment. In Florida, they passed the Florida Parental Rights and Education Bill that bans teaching of sexual orientation or gender identity to students in kindergarten through third grade. Now, if you have, aren't aware of this, you've just been not watching any TV or news or anything. It is everywhere. It's exploding right now all over 
news media outlets and, and internet and social media and so on. Just over 62% of Americans nationwide, not in Florida, nationwide, agree with this bill that has been sponsored by Governor Ron DeSantis and his team. But radical LGBTQIA plus Disney employees, and it turns out they're a small majority, staged a walkout in protest of this bill. Uh, this led to internal meetings of Disney executives. David, you're up again now. Here is a video of a Disney executive leaked by a whistleblower boasting of her not-so-secret gay agenda of adding queerness to the Disney curriculum. You need to volume up for this one. Like, I love Disney's content. I grew up watching, you know, all of the classics. They have been a huge, like, informative <laughs> part of my life. But at the same time, like, I worked at small studios most of my career, and I'd heard, you know, you hear whispers. Like, I, I'd heard things like, oh, you know, they won't let you show this at a Disney show. And I'm like, okay. So I was a little, like, sus when I started. And, but then my experience was bafflingly the opposite of what I had heard on my little pocket of like, you know, proud family, Disney TVA. Um, the showrunners were super welcoming Meredith Roberts and like the, the, our leadership over there has been so welcoming to like my, like not at all secret gay agenda. And so like, I, I feel like I felt like it was, I mean, like maybe it was that way in the past, but I guess like something must've happened in the last, like, like they're turning it around, they're going hard. And then all that like momentum that I felt like that sense of, I don't have to be afraid to like, let's have these two characters kiss. Let's in the background, like I was just wherever I could just basically adding queerness to like, the, if you see anything queer in the show, I'm proud of them. But like, I, I just was like, no one would stop me and no one was trying to stop me. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what that is. Anyways. Yeah. So, there are other videos leaked. That we'll actually get to these in our Sunday school class. We didn't have time this morning about what's going on at Disney. But, you know, let's go back to, well, let me add this. There the Disney, one of the presidents, uh, president or vice president, they want 50% of the stories now to be like queer characters in them, with lead characters that are, are gay. Um, they don't let you say, they don't acknowledge you by your gender anymore. It's not guys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, okay? They're, that's their new policy. So they've gone, what we say, woke. Disney's gone woke, okay? Now, I said to you that the, the five liberal justices said that redefining marriage, including same-sex, would not have any harm to third parties. And I said that they're targeting children, and that simply isn't true. I'm saying to you what we've seen so far, what I read to you about what's going on in libraries and in schools, without parents' permissions or hiding from them, and, and now at places that you pay money to go be entertained, that should not be happening to children. By the way, the Florida bill 
the Florida Parental Rights Bill, it just says, I don't want gender ideology or sexual orientation being taught to kindergarten through third grade. That's all the bill says. It doesn't say anything about gay or anything. Okay. Now, I'm going to say this as well. There are, it's come out yesterday that there are conservatives, obviously within Disney, that were at this meeting, and they were posting their thoughts about supporting the bill. There are a number of gay conservatives that were in support of the bill and saying, you do not do this to children at this age. I wouldn't want my children to see this. So there's just this universal support, yet Disney has gone woke. They've embraced this. Now, why is this happening? Well, Paul describes it in this way. Go to Romans 1.28. So we have a what? You reject God, followed by a sexual revolution, followed by a homosexual revolution. Well, look at verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, what happened? God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not Proper. It is not proper to teach young children sexual orientation or gender ideology. So Romans 1, 21 through 28 is playing out right before our very eyes. And this is a progression we have seen in our lifetime. It begins with a society that rejects God, which is always followed by a sexual revolution, which is followed by a homosexual revolution, which is followed by unprecedented depravity. You see what's going on in the news, let's just stick with Disney, and you're shocked, aren't you? I mean, how in the world is this happening? I would never have thought in 100 years that this would even be something that would be even in the radar of my thinking. But this is the result of redefining the family and marriage. Because I want you to look at this from a reverse angle. There would be no threat of a depraved, sexually perverted movement seeking to exploit children as young as the kindergarten age that's fueled by an aggressive gay agenda which was jump-started from a sexual liberation movement because a society turned their backs on God if there were spirit-filled marriages and godly families. See the reverse? See, it all goes back to the family and the marriage. And this is why Satan is attacking these two divinely created institutions. There's so much confusion about the family. That was last week. There's so much confusion about marriage. And so we defined the family last week. Let's define marriage this morning. And it's ridiculous that I have to do this. But this is what marriage is. The biblical definition of marriage. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. In your Bibles, go all the way to the beginning. Okay? That was one long introduction. So you have a choice, by the way. Um, and we're talking about this in Sunday school class, but you have a choice to support these corporations or not. It's like Disney. What's the biblical definition of marriage? Well, as I said last week, according to the Bible, God himself ordained the family and he also ordained marriage. 
as the foundation of human society to be a blessing to society. Verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And again, I say to you last week, I'll say it again this week, there was no caveman, Neanderthal man like you've been taught growing up or the, the little cartoons and stuff like that that was dumb and, oh, he discovered the will and stuff like that. No, no, no. Adam was very intelligent. And for all of us here, he was smarter than all of us here. Could you name all the creatures of the world? Well, why was he smarter than us? But because he wasn't affected at this point in time by sin. Okay? Verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock, into the creature, and the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So obviously God created marriage to be between a, a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. Now as my introduction highlighted, a society that does not honor and protect marriage undermines its very existence. Well why? Because one of God's designs for marriage is to show the next generation how a husband and wife demonstrate mutual and sacrificial love toward each other. Did you know that? That's one of God's designs for marriage. It's not about you getting, folks, it's about you giving. I wish I had learned that when we were first married. But when husbands and wives forsake that love, uh, their marriage fails to be what God intended. And when marriage fails, what happens to the family? Family falls apart, and then society suffers. Now, we are witnesses to that every day. We are coming up on living in six years in Washington State, my family. And while the state is very liberal in its politics and lifestyles, what has been by far the number one societal trait that Erica and I have noticed is the breakdown of the family and marriages in this state. It's far more than anything we experienced in, 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 with our kids in Ohio and in Indiana. In our almost six years, God has brought to our family four teenagers we have ministered to who have come from broken families and failed marriages. They have all been shocked when they interact with our family. First, that their parents are happily married. That was never modeled for them. Second, the children and parents love each other. We get along. I can't get my older kids out of the house. I can't wait for them to be out of the house. But they're still around. They're fun. I, I have so much fun with them. I enjoy being with them. They enjoy being with us and so on. So, yes, get an amen for that. There we go. Okay. 
Well, why? I mean, that the, they're shocked to see that, that we're happily married and that we actually enjoy each other, the, the children and the, and the parents. And to put it simply, what these, these four teenagers are seeing is, is what we call a fulfilled family. Well, why? Well, we have chosen to model our family and marriage according to God's standard. And that has brought us immense meaning, happiness, and fulfillment. It's a radical idea. Follow God's model. Now, is there a better time for God's children to live out God's standard for family and marriage than now? As society around us collapses into more depravity and dysfunction? So what is God's standard for marriage? Well, get your Bibles out. Go back to Ephesians, or go to Ephesians 5. So you're going... New Testament, Old Testament. Now you're going back to the New Testament. This is God's standard for marriage. Now the most explicit passages of Scripture that outlines God's standard for marriage is Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. And it begins with the wife's responsibility before the Lord. Okay? Sorry, in verse 22... Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Verse 33, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, I've said this before, but I don't think I've ever gone into great detail, and I won't get to do a whole lot here, but... Do you remember what the Greek word for subject or submit to is here in this verse? You're going to want to know these. It's the Greek word hupotasso. Okay? And it speaks of two equals. And this is key for husbands and wives and for boys and girls and so on. It's two equals, okay, like this, where one of the equals voluntarily submits to the other equal. Okay? Okay? So in the marriage relationship, someone, if they're equal, has got to sit in the second chair. Okay? I want you to understand that it's equals. Submission in no way implies a difference in essence or worth. So for the wife, in this instance, by God's design, you're called as an equal to submit to your husband. That's what the text says. Be subject to him. They are equal, everybody, men and women, husbands and wives, boys and girls, Women are equal to men in value, in image, and in moral responsibility. You are an image bearer, women, as men are. You're a child of God. You're equal. But it does refer, this word hupotasso, to a willing submission of oneself. Wives, excuse me, submission is to be your voluntary response to God's will. This is the role God has created for you in marriage because Adam was first, then a helper was created for him, Eve. This is the role God has created for you in marriage and it is under immense attack. You are to willingly, wives, in this instance, give up your rights to other believers because that's, in general, that's 521. See that? Submit to one another. 
It's mutual submission to everybody. And, and of course, husbands, that also includes you. We'll get into that in a minute here. So you are to give up your rights willingly to believers in general and to your husband as your ordained authority. When you're in a marriage, he is now your authority. He is your head. That's why you give up your name, typically, when you're married. Let me show you another verse that illustrates this point. Just listen to this. You don't have to go there. In 1 Corinthians eleven seven, it says this. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. What is Paul saying in 1 Corinthians eleven seven? Well, it says this, that men in relationship to women have a particular role of representing God or showing what he is like. That's your role in the marriage. You represent God and what he's like. And women in relationship to men, and particularly the wife to the husband, show the excellence of the men from which she was created. So in other words, Erica's there to make me look good. Okay? The Lord knows I need that. I'm there to, in that relationship to make God look good. A wife's willing submission to her husband, wives, it reveals a sense of ownership that this is my guy. I committed to make him look good because the Lord knows he needs that. And it communicates respect to him, the respect she has for her husband. I want to be loved, but boy, I want to be respected by my wife. Elizabeth Elliot, writing on the essence of femininity, offers a, a fitting summary of God's ideal for wives. She says this, unlike Eve, just so you know, Eve was the first feminist. <laughs> unlike Eve, whose response to God was calculating and self-serving in the garden, she followed the temptation of Satan. The Virgin Mary's answer holds no hesitation about risks or losses or the interruption of her own plans. It is an utter and unconditional self-giving. Remember what she said when approached by the angel? I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Luke 1.38. This is what I understand to be the essence of femininity. It means surrender. Think of a bride. She surrenders her independence, her name, her destiny, her will, herself to the bridegroom in marriage. The gentle and quiet spirit of which Peter speaks calling it of great worth in the sight of God is the true femininity which found its epitome in marriage. By the way, the gentle and quiet spirit, what's the word gentle mean? Do you remember that? It's power under control. You have, you're equal, wives. You're equal. But what do you do with all that you have? You surrender it. You submit to your husband. That is precious in the sight of God. Because you're honoring God's chain of command, his created order. Now, let's talk about husbands, because Paul devoted just three and a half verses to the wife. But guys, husbands, the remaining nine and a half verses go to the husband. So what's Paul's focus here? It's primarily not to, to the wives, it's to husbands. And Specifically, he speaks to the husband's duty to submit to his wife. 
through his love for her. Look at Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Now the Lord's pattern of love for his church, husbands, your responsibility is to pattern God for your wives, and the Lord's pattern of love for his church is the husband's pattern of love for his wife. And it manifests itself in four ways. The first point is the sacrificial love. And gave himself up for her. The husband who loves his wife as Christ loves his church will give up everything he has for his wife, including his life if necessary. In day-to-day realities, this means husbands are to put aside their own desires to please their wife and meet her needs. In doing so, then, they are truly dying to self to live for their wife, and that is what Christ's love demands. So their desires come first. There is a purifying love. It's the second point. Look at verses 26 and 27. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Christ loved the church sacrificially, and by the way, his sacrificial death made us, the church, what? Holy. So Christ loved the church sacrificially with this goal in mind, purity, holiness. Love, God's love, the love that husbands are called to love their wives, cannot bear for a wife to be harmed in any way. Husband who loves his wife does everything in his power to maintain her holiness. This obviously means doing nothing to defile or bring impurity into her life. Number three, there's a caring love. Verses 28 and 29. Husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Now the word translated cherishes, it literally means to warm with body heat. Did you know that? You warm with body heat. It's used to describe of a bird sitting on her nest in Deuteronomy 22.6. So husbands, it's your job. Provide a secure, warm, safe haven for their wife. My wife... Whenever we move to a house, she must feel safe and secure because she nests. She gets everything in order and will exhaust herself getting everything in place, everything, every picture hung up where it goes, all of the furniture where it has to be. By the way, the furniture is her furniture. It's not my furniture for the most part, so you know that, okay? Most of the pictures are hers, despite what she may say. I'm providing stuff for her, and it's for her. It's what she wants. So we have all this stuff, and she's just exhausting herself. I said, what are you doing? So I am nesting. I said, what are you, a bird? I gotta get, before I can get comfortable in this place, I gotta get everything in its place and make it mine, and then I can just relax. And I'm like, you are weird. Just throw a couple pictures up and turn the TV on, we're good, right? <laughs> we need pictures, there you go. So this is my wife. You, you, husbands, it's your job to create that safe haven for them. So a husband, when your wife needs strength, you give her strength. When she needs encouragement, you give her encouragement. Whatever she needs, you're obligated to supply as best as you can. 
See, God chose you to provide for and protect her, to nourish and cherish her, and you're to do it as Christ also does the church. I know submission is hard, but I gotta be honest with you, guys, or husband, we're talking about, you know, we got a raw deal in this end. I mean, there's a lot of work to do. Love is Christ of the church. And number four, it's an unbreakable love. So you've got a caring love, you have an unbreakable love. Look at verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. For a husband to love his wife as Christ loves the church, he must love her with an unbreakable love. That's an unconditional agape love. In this direct quotation from Genesis 2.24, Paul emphasizes the, the permanence as well as the unity of marriage. And God's standard for marriage still hasn't changed. So husbands, I'm speaking to you, your union with your wife is permanent. When you got married, you had to leave, cleave, and become one with your wife. Never go back on that. Let your wife rest in security of knowing that you belong to her for life. As a pastor, I have counseled many couples who are going through the pain of divorce or are remarrying after divorce. And the number one fear I hear from these newly married wives and husbands, but primarily wives, is found the hope that this new husband will not leave her like her previous husband did. See, he found some fault in her that overruled his commitment he made to her on their wedding day. That's one of the reasons why God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. There's nothing you can do that will change that. And that's why I keep telling my wife, I says, Erica, you are secure with me. And it, husbands, wives need to hear that. You're secure with me. I'm never going to leave you. You may want to murder you, but I'm not going to divorce you, Right? That Muriel uh, Eggerdahl said that. But just as the body of Christ is indivisible, God's ideal for marriage is that it be indivisible as well. As Christ is one with his church, husbands are to be one with their wives. You have staying power. Okay? Now, Paul goes on to say this, and this is very, 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 very significant. Are you getting my point here? You may want to write this one down. Ephesians 5.32, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Now, why is submission, as well as sacrificial, purifying, and caring love, so strongly emphasized in Scripture? Because the sacredness of the church is tied to the sacredness of marriage. The sacredness of the church. See that? It's tied to the sacredness of marriage. It's a great mystery. Marriage is a great mystery. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Christian marriages are to be a testimony to the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. And we're not doing a good enough job. So what's the application point here? It's pretty simple. Ask yourself this question if you're married. What is your marriage saying to the watching world? 
is it a demonstration of Christ's love for the church? Husbands, is it a demonstration of your love for your wife? It's Christ the church. Wives, are you a submissive church? Are you a submissive wife? Respecting your, your husband, respecting Christ, you submit to him. Those are the questions we have. Now that is, today it's traditional, right? It's not popular. You have, we saw again this week, what has been called toxic masculinity at the Oscars, right? Abusive male behavior. And we have had, from the very beginning, a feminist movement that attacks the beautiful design of God of a wife in submission to her authority as her husband. And what we're seeing in our world today, again, goes back to the breakdown of the family in the marriage. And it is ugly. It is vile. It is perverted. And that's what a culture, a society gets, a country gets, when they reject God. The hope is what? It's as it has always been, the church. The church functioning as God designed the church to be, being salt and light in a dark world, and the family, the Christian family, and Christian marriages being modeled as God has designed. We didn't ask for these four teenagers to come into our house. God has brought them to us. They're seeing something modeled for them that's totally new. And that's the way it should be. And we're not a perfect family at all. But if you just do your best, if you seek God and do the best to follow your, model your life and your, and your marriage and your family and your parenting, everything after Christ, God will bless you and you'll be a blessing to society. And that's why we're here. Amen? Stand with me and pray, and we'll close this song this morning. Lord, make our, uh, our marriages just godly and honoring to you. May our marriages and the issues we have, may we work them out, may we deal with conflict that we talked about last few weeks and months, and may we just have this, would you just Make our marriages, our lives, a blessing to society that is lost and is dying and is in darkness and is in depression and needs the hope only found in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.